I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast, the show where we strive to understand and make better use of political outrage. I'm your host, Jack Miller, and I'm coming to you from the White Tiger Studios here in Portland, Oregon. Before I get into the heart of today's show, I'm going to do a shameless plug for myself. In addition to being a political science professor at Portland State University, and of course doing this podcast, I'm also a fiction writer, and I just recently released my first novel. It's called 1994, A Novel of Politics. It is a historical novel set 25 years ago in, yes, the year 1994, the year of the so-called Republican Revolution. Whatever you call it, it was certainly a red wave election. The House and the Senate flipped from Democratic to Republican control for the first time in many decades. The novel is centered around a Senate race in Ohio, and the main character is a female political strategist striving to get one of the Senate candidates elected, functioning in an old boys network of politics, which still existed in 1994. I won't say too much more about it. That's the basic premise. You can pick it up on Amazon. The link is in the show notes. You can also go to the website 1994novel.com. That's all one word with numbers 1994novel.com, and that will link you up as well. All right, well, thanks for indulging my shameless self-plug. Now let's get into the interview for this week's show, which is Jillian Shoney, who's the executive director of Emerge Oregon. I'm going to let her say more about her organization, and I'm just going to get right into the interview. Welcome, Jillian. Thank you for having me. I would like to just begin, before I start asking you questions, why don't you just give me an overview of what your organization does? So we've been around for about 10 years, and over the last decade, we have been actively recruiting and training and then encouraging Democratic women to run for all levels of elected office, from your parks and recreation district all the way up to statewide office here in Oregon. Now, Emerge is a network, though. There are other mm-hmm. Emerges in other states. And how yes. did you get connected with Emerge? The board of directors was looking for a new executive director back in 2014, and one of their board members reached out to me. Um, I had just finished uh, running Deborah Kofori's race for Multnomah County chair and had just had a baby. Because of my experience, they uh, approached me, and because of where I was at in my personal life, it really was a good fit because I loved the work. I wanted to see more women running, and it provided me some flexibility with having a young child. 
Great. So you could put your experience to work for something you believed in and fit mm-hmm. with your personal life. That sounds like yep. a it sounds like a great fit all around. How did you get involved in politics? Well, I was in college and my degrees were international studies and political science. I was just interested. Um, there was no real plan or direction for my life at that point. But um, I wanted to be a middle school teacher. So I applied and was accepted to graduate school for that. And then two weeks prior, I made the decision not to because I spent some time in the Springfield School District watching teachers. The ones that really appealed to me were the teachers who were bringing in lived in life experiences to the textbook curriculum. I did not feel like I was prepared to teach and also mentor, by example, to middle school children. So I declined that acceptance and instead knocked on Congressman Peter DeFazio's door and said, I'm interested in government and politics. Can I work for you for free? How did you get to that door? Because that's a big step. Like, well, what made you decide to be that forward and to specifically say, I'm going to go try to work for a member of the House of Representatives? I uh, actually, I spoke with my father and told him what was happening. And he said, well, uh, and he's largely apolitical. Okay. So you don't come from a, a politically steeped family? No, I do not. He said, well, why don't you talk to the government relations folks at my company? He worked for an energy company at that time. So I spoke with the two government relations folks. They said, well, just why don't you go work for a member of Congress? Here's what constituent services looks like. Here's what they do to connect people to government and help them solve their problem or get them the information they need, get them the money they deserve for whether it's the Veterans Administration or Social Security or whatever. And that really appealed to me. So that's what led me to Congressman DeFazio's door. They accepted me and I fell in love with connecting people to government. From there, I worked with a different member of Congress and I started out in veterans casework helping veterans, whether it's getting health care at the VA, their disability benefits, which requires, you know, getting records from the Department of Defense. And so were you mostly doing constituent services mm-hmm. or were you also getting into the policy making side of things? Uh, I was also doing some policy making. Many of our members of Congress, I feel like we're a little bit spoiled here in Oregon, do a very good job of connecting what their constituent services and field representatives are doing in their state with the policy folks back in the D.C. office. And if you have a member of Congress who keeps that connection tied very tightly, and for us, that meant bringing the D.C. staff out of D.C. and to Oregon for our planning sessions, etc. We always kept our feet planted firmly in the 1st Congressional District of Oregon. You now work in elections. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did you get from there to elections? So in 2010, I was working for Governor Ted Kulingoski, who I love and adore, and his second term was coming to a close, and the John Kitzhaber campaign needed a communications director for his 2010 gubernatorial race, his third time running for governor. And so I jumped ship to take that job and worked that campaign. And from there, worked a series of campaigns, uh, caught the bug. Right. I was saying, what appealed to you? You caught the bug. Uh, People go into campaign and they either catch the bug or they flee pretty quickly. And yet, and you didn't, you caught the bug. What was it? What was the nature of the bug for you? I like the intensity. I like the, there's a finish line, a very clear finish line. And you work your ass off. From the day the campaign launches until election day and the voters get to decide. And so you leave nothing on the table. That's very appealing. Yeah. 
So I will pose the question that I ask of all of my guests. This is a podcast about political outrage, and I want us to explore that. What is something that used to outrage you but no longer does, and why the change? I'll answer that first by um, speaking to the title of the show, reading that the, the pothole problem immediately brought to mind of how during my constituent services day, like, yes, people get angry about potholes. I certainly have gotten annoyed by potholes as I drive to the grocery store or errands or whatever, but I would say that is largely subsided because the problems we face are just so much bigger than a pothole. And I can slow down. I can drive around that pothole. It's okay. I'm glad to hear that you see potholes that way. (laughs) I'm not sure that I am in the majority. They they Um, are a very visible face of the failure of government and people's reflexive annoyance with government and its failures. Yes. And they're there and it's in your face and you feel that bump hit your back tire. So I get it. But that's not your answer to my question. That's just, that's an answer. And I I really hope that almost everybody can say that about potholes, but probably Probably not. Correct. I, I think that's probably true. I would speak to here in Oregon around um, abortion access. And of course, my uh, outrage has only subsided because of uh, the good work of some elected leaders and community organizations here in the state who um, have brought abortion access to every woman, no matter who she is, how she's insured, uh, whether she's undocumented or not. She has access to abortion. I firmly believe that abortion is health care. And we have fixed that problem here in Oregon. Um, we are now implementing it. So we need to make sure we implement it right so that women are getting those health care services that they need when they need it at an affordable level. So your outrage has, on this particular issue, has subsided or disappeared because of a policy success. Mm-hmm. I don't want to presume to know why it is that lack of abortion access was a source of outrage for you in the first place. So why don't you talk about that for just a second? Well, um, I was on the board of Planned Parenthood for about eight years. So abortion access and also access to birth control and a variety of reproductive health care services for both men and women and all gender, gender identities, quite frankly, they do a lot of cancer screenings and STD treatment and all those things that we all need. So I, I believed in it, but it became very personal in 2014 when I needed to have a late term abortion. We got some bad news late in a pregnancy, and I chose to have an abortion in the 24th week of that pregnancy. It was hard. It was very emotional, so emotional that when my doctor told me I could do it within Kaiser, my healthcare provider at the time, I didn't even hear him say that to me. And so I went home in panic mode, trying to call around to where I could get this done and learned through that process in a very real way, how inaccessible that getting an abortion is. There was only one place that would serve me. So if Kaiser hadn't been able to do it, there was only one option for you. Correct. One community, the Lovejoy Clinic. Uh, Every other place stops offering those services at 20 weeks. I really appreciate you sharing that story. In a way, that's a happy story of your personal outrage overcome. Though, Of course, the abortion issue generates a lot of outrage from all different viewpoints. I would love it if we could sit here in the next 15 minutes and figure out how we could get past that level of outrage. But I think that it's probably a, a good idea to move on to a different question, which is what is something that continues to outrage you? And how do you think that you and we as a society can get beyond that? I will then speak to my current job 
it's certainly I've been outraged that we haven't had the diversity of candidates. And when I say diversity, I mean diversity in all ways, racial and ethnic diversity, age diversity, professional experience, diversity, uh, and lived experiences, all of those things that I feel we need in elected leadership. And that's why I do the work now to turn my outrage into action. And we are getting somewhere. We've largely been successful over the last 10 years. Oregon, I think, is is ahead of the game, just like we are on abortion access. My outrage on abortion applies nationally. <laughs> but, um, you know, we're doing something about it. And we are having more women and people of color considering elected office. And our organization helps women in particular and women of color find that pathway to elected leadership. It isn't always clear. It's not easy. Running campaigns is hard. What are some of the obstacles that women face, even in just deciding to run? And how do you help get them past those obstacles? You know, campaigns are the most public job interview you will ever have. It's brutal. (laughs) It is. And you get questions are coming from a variety of different audiences and um, but becoming that public person is a very different thing and you have to be willing to be open to that you have to have your family on board and still today there are women in particular who turn to their families Step one is you got you have to have your family on board. So when before a woman goes on to run for office out of our program, it's like my first question is, is your family on board? And there are still barriers there, you know, because women are still the primary um, child care taker and home caretaker, right? Yeah. In our in our families in our homes, um, it means less time for the partner. For the kids. Right. What about the kids is going to be asked yep. of a female candidate and a male candidate yes. is not going to get that question probably. And not every partner, even for our alum, has been supportive right. of a woman's run for office. And that has kept her from running. So there is a very deeply personal barrier there that um, I think is changing. It is changing. But there are some intense conversations that our women have with their families, unfortunately. That's difficult. So now that barrier gets crossed. The Mm -hmm. family is on board. What are other obstacles to getting from a maybe to a yes or to a successful run? Networks. You have to have networks to win. You have to have people supporting you in all the ways to run a winning campaign. It looks like a solo endeavor because there's one candidate, one name, but it is really, truly a team effort. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. And because, um, you know, again, things are changing, but women who haven't worked outside the home or haven't had the flexibility to build networks outside of their job and their work at home with kids and other things, um, have don't have the network to tap like males traditionally have because right. they've had flexibility. You had lots of men going for beers after work, right. networking their way to an eventual run, whether they were doing it consciously or not. And women just have not been doing that. Again, it's changing. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, 
designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. Is there anything else that is difficult for non-white men to succeed in the electoral realm? I would I would jump then to storytelling. And it plays also to the public persona piece and getting your family on board that voters need to see themselves in you. And right. we largely connect as humans through storytelling. And so getting any candidate to think about what, it, what are the things that happened in your life, good or bad, that shaped your values today and why you believe we should be investing in public education, why you believe healthcare is a right, and getting to that, that why and, and sharing that why through a story, that's what resonates with people. Right. What makes it more difficult for a non-white male to craft and tell a compelling story? Over the last many decades, women haven't been telling their stories. And so it feels new and a little scary. Right. Finding your voice. And finding your voice. And again, and I want to say, you know, male candidates also struggle with that. But um, men don't typically have a yeah, problem speaking up and no, telling their stories. No, they don't. So the lived experiences of of women are just different and their stories haven't been told. But again, I do think that is changing. Even with the women who have run here in Oregon, there has been a rich diversity in their lived experiences and their stories. And that's at the end of the day, it's going to result in better public policy. But voters want to hear it. I would say there's a lot more that is on the table now where people used to hide debt or bankruptcy. Well, why do you have that debt? Why did you do that, have that bankruptcy? You were hospitalized and your insurance only covered a very small portion and you had a $20,000 bill you couldn't pay because you were 28 and only making 40K a year. Share that story because there are a lot of people out there who can connect with that. And I think actually women candidates are leading the way on that in particular, being more open. The stories of struggle. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, a lot of people can certainly relate to stories of struggle, even if it's not the same struggle. Mm -hmm. I think student debt is a very good example. It wasn't that long ago where people weren't leaving college, right? With the debt we're seeing today. I don't have to experience 150k in student loan debt to know that needs to be fixed because that is unacceptable. Student loan debt, uh, healthcare-related debt mm-hmm. is both of those are big problems right now, and so potential candidates don't need to be ashamed mm-hmm. of a story. I could see that being uh, like a, a hidden obstacle. There's a deep shame, and you know, the American political culture, of course, is very connected to personal success. And if you perceive yourself as a personal failure, that's going to be, you're not even going to ask the question of like, well, how could I make this story of struggle into a potentially useful political asset to connect with voters who themselves are struggling? I'm not outraged by that. I have a relatively low level of outrage in general, but I am bothered by a lot of things. And the idea that a significant portion of our human capital that could help our political system run better, give more ideas, more perspective that our human capital is being wasted because a lot of people don't even think that going into politics is, is possible for them. So how do, how, how do we change that? Well, you're, I... W- you're doing something. 
Right. And I think it, it at least feels, I mean, feel free to challenge me on this, but it feels like there is more, there are more avenues for people to channel their outrage into action. The internet has provided that, right? We can, we don't necessarily have to show up to a town hall meeting or a city council meeting. I mean, I would love for more people to be able to do that, but you have work and family, but you can write a letter and email and issue something to the newspaper. You can get on social media. I would encourage you to also get off of social media and do something. You can show up for rallies. Like there are so many different ways these days. And I just think that's a very powerful and therapeutic thing. Well, the internet is, it is a great facilitator. The dark side of it is that it also is a place where outrage can go to be amplified and to grow and to just express itself endlessly without any kind of Mm -hmm. positive, active outlet. That doesn't mean that all those opportunities aren't still there. All the ones you listed are are definitely there. It's that there's a very powerful counter force, (laughs) a -hmm. dark side that takes people's dissatisfactions and gives them the ability to amplify it. And I think that's, you know, we're starting, I, I think a lot of people understand, even those who participate in it, that that's not particularly healthy. Right. And they don't want it. But it's also very compelling. It's like junk food. Mm-hmm. We know it's bad for us, but it tastes so good. I, I feel like we could, we could talk, you and I, I feel like we could talk about this stuff for hours mm-hmm. and it would, it would be wonderful. I just want to ask if you have any like, last things to say about your own relationship to political outrage. Because you're, you're doing something. You do not, you're not just doing something. You're doing a big something about the things that you see that are wrong with the world. How do you relate to your own outrage and your own, all of your emotions surrounding the political system? You seem like a very calm person to me. <laughs> and I guess that what I want is I want to, I want some, I want a lesson here from you. Oh, I think my alumni would totally disagree on that, on um, me being a calm person. I, I channel a bunch of intense energy in the campaign realm. Yes, my outrage very much still exists, but I dig deeper, and and that is also something that we we speak to on day one, you know, of emerge when an elected leader does something you don't like, you can get angry about it, or you can dig into the why, figure out why they voted that way, and offer information, plug into a community based organization to lobby them. I now allow, and I and I think we should the time and the space for our elected leaders to evolve. Because if we don't do that, I think we will be limited in the progressive agenda and how far we can deliver better services and, you know, better schools, whatever it is for the families we all care about, that we have to work with our elected leaders. You know, you hear so-and-so elected leader voted this way. Ask them why before you post something on social media. Read the full news article. Maybe check a different source. And then maybe you're still outraged because the why also pisses you off. Right. But then it's not just a reaction, an anger reaction. It's so easy to get angry and then to just run with anger. And I, you know, I think of it as the way we relate to anybody who's important to us in our lives, our partners, our children, our, our parents, our friends. Everybody does things that potentially could make you angry or mm-hmm. outraged. Uh, and in a healthy relationship, you, you know, maybe you express that. Maybe you yell at your, your spouse and just like, ah, why did you do that? It drives me crazy. But for a healthy relationship, you then can say, okay, well, why did you do that? And that leads to understanding. And hopefully, mm-hmm. if it is a healthy relationship, you can also say, well, you, you did that thing and it made me angry. And the person can say, yeah, and, and I did that. But 
I'm going to try not to mm-hmm. in the future. And, and that's where you can kind of lead with forgiveness. So there's, to me, there's an analogy between how we, how we should handle healthy relationships with how we can, as a public, relate to public officials. Well, meeting people where they're at. You know, we have a broad spectrum of what a, a Democrat is mm-hmm. in this state, in this country. Meeting people where they're at, I think, is how we grow our numbers on the left side of the spectrum. And, and Democrats, progressives, liberals, whatever term we, you you want to use, you know, I'm a firm believer in that we're going to bring ourselves down before the conservative right does because the firing inward and, you know, purity tests and those sorts yeah. of things can be very undermining when... I believe we outnumber them. Yeah. We just need to and, and stick again, together. It, it is very compelling in politics to want people that you vote for to have all of your same right. beliefs. And I know, I mean, just again, to get back to relationships, like we don't expect that in relationships. We don't expect the mm-hmm. person that we love to agree with us on all issues. And yet there's this dynamic in politics that we expect or want the people that we vote for or support or donate money to or, or are active mm-hmm. on their behalf to fit all of our beliefs. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why people choose not to go into politics is that they understand that it's so much easier to lose somebody's support than it is to win it. Right. Because all you have to do is make one misstep. Right. Exactly. Candidates can't run and win alone. Yes. And we teach that. You have to have that network of support. Well, our elected leaders can't lead successfully alone. Right. And so getting them the information. Great. And that, that leads me to my last question. Is there anything or things, multiple things that you want to plug or announce? Right after Trump got elected, I was on this panel. And the panel was represented people who were creating change in their way. And it just was very clear to me, there were so there are so many different lanes to run down if you want to influence change in your community. There was a person on the, the, the panel that, uh, through art, or I would... I do nothing in the art world, but she created that she wanted more people experiencing art and bringing people together around art for dialogue. And she created this past thing that, you know, if you visited so many art studios and museums or what, you know, something like that, that I would never do. But, um, you know, but that you can is recognize the value in that. So valuable. And she's swimming down her art lane. I'm swimming down my candidate recruitment lane. There were other people doing things within the business community. Right. So I just, there are so many things and so many ways you can give back. Find one. Broaden your perspective on what counts as political action. Right. And right. what makes a difference in the world and just seek that. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's that's not a specific plug, but that's a general plug for yes. people. I, I appreciate yeah. it. I'm not going to put you on the spot and say you need to give me the name of a book or an organization. That is actually, a, that's a great, maybe what I should do is I should end by saying, well, what's your advice for people? Because that, you have answered that question very well. Well, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate Thank you, you coming in. Thank you for having in. me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I wish you luck in your endeavors and emergeor.org mm-hmm. to find out more about Jillian and her organization. And particularly if you're a woman who has any inclination towards running for office, this is a very useful resource for you, as a, even just as a first step to deciding whether that's something you want to do or not. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for coming in. Thank you. You are listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller, and we're nearly finished with episode number two. I hope you come back and listen next week when we're going to have another interview with another person working in the field of politics in a different way. 
Before I leave you today, I'm going to play a song from a local band. This is something that I'm going to do from time to time, maybe not every time, but I would like to provide a little bit of uh, a little bit of entertainment and maybe some thought-provoking music to take you out. This is a local band called Ruby Calling. You can find out more about them in the show notes. Here they go, and thanks for listening. Lord Byron was Ada's father. Mother left him early on. And his sister on math instead of poetry. Ada was just gone. Surprise them all with a mathematical mind. Wrote the world's first computer program, only her initials she signed. Ada, Ada, Ada Rowe. Ada, Ada, Ada Rowe. Ada, Ada, Ada Rowe. The first computer program in the world in 1843. Started with the translation. From French to English Notes made her famous If she wanted fame, she got a wish Ada, Ada, Ada Rowe Ada, Ada, Ada Rowe Ada, Ada, Ada Rowe The first computer program in the world in 1843 Ada became a countess Never stopped studying math 